Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. My name is Carl Reilert and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. Up until now we've covered the First World War and its origins up to the beginning of 1917 and also last week the Russian Revolution. Today we focus on the War of Attrition on the Western Front in the year 1917. While the nations of Europe had fought each other to a better stalemate, the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, urged both sides to make peace. Public opinion in America was divided, but tended to favour the Allies on ideological grounds, strengthened by social links with the British ruling classes. There was strong pressure led by ex-President Theodore Roosevelt for immediate intervention on the side of the Allies. On the other hand, a German-American lobby tended to sympathise with the Central Powers. So did many American Jews, largely because of Russia's record of anti-Semitism. However, sympathy for Germany was severely damaged by atrocities committed in Belgium, the use of poison gas and the sinking of commercial ships by German U-boats. Most Americans, though, were keen to avoid being sucked into a European conflict, and Woodrow Wilson won re-election in 1916 on a promise to maintain US neutrality. Shortly after being re-elected, he invited the belligerent states to state their peace terms. The French and British and their allies were happy to do so, knowing the Americans would be sympathetic to them. They involved first and foremost the restoration of Belgian and Serb independence with full indemnity for the damage done by their occupiers. In addition, they required restitution of provinces of territories wrested in the past from allies by force. This referred clearly to Alsace-Lorraine, but perhaps other territories, as well inhabited by Italians, Slavs, Romanians or other ethnic groups under foreign domination, including those in the Habsburg Empire. Poland was to be granted independence, a concession which Tsar Nicholas II of Russia had already accepted for the Polish territories under his control. The effective leaders of Germany, Hindenburg and Ludendorff were confident of ultimate victory and unwilling to make significant concessions. The terms they sought were so extreme that Chancellor Bethmann Hollweg dare not make them public. He confidently communicated to Woodrow Wilson a watered-down version. Belgium would not be annexed outright but become virtually a German protectorate. Not only would Alsace-Lorraine remain in German hands, but France should also surrender the neighbouring land under Brie. In the east, German protectorates would be established over Poland and Baltic provinces. 
Austrian dominance would be restored in the Balkans, and colonial territory yielded in Africa. Had the Germans won the war, these were probably the best terms the Allies could have expected, but neither side was yet defeated, and the governments of both sides were prepared to fight on. The German High Command, after the failures to make a breakthrough in 1916, resigned themselves on the Western Front to continued gruelling static combat. Instead, they turned their attention back to their navy. On the 1st of February 1917, Germany announced a full resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare, not only around the British Isles, but also across the Mediterranean, and shortly afterwards, and most controversially, off the eastern coast of the United States. By this time, the German U-boat fleet had grown to over 150 modern submarines. These quickly caused chaos to essential sea lanes that fed and supplied Britain, and threatened not only foodstuff provision, but other essential goods to Britain, and also the huge quantities of war material and munitions required for the war being waged on the Western Front. Wilson immediately broke off relations with Germany, although he did not yet declare war. Armed neutrality, whereby the Americans would arm and protect its own shipping, still seemed a possibility. The decision by the German High Command to risk bringing the United States into the war with their policy on unrestricted submarine warfare appears completely reckless. This was compounded by a further provocation when on the 16th of January they cabled the Mexican government, which was in a state of intermittent hostilities with the United States. They proposed an alliance in which they would make war together with generous financial support and an understanding to help Mexico reconquer lost territories in Texas, New Mexico and Arizona. The British had intercepted and decoded the cable as soon as it was sent, but they did not reveal its contents to Wilson until the 24th of February. Natural suspicions that it might be a British forgery were laid to rest by the German Foreign Minister, Arthur Zimmermann, who admitted that the telegram was genuine. There was widespread public outrage in the United States, and Woodrow Wilson declared war on Germany on the 5th of April 1917. The war would be, in his words, a crusade, quote, for democracy, for the rights of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for universal dominion of rights, of free peoples who shall bring peace and safety to all nations and make the world itself free, unquote. Writes the historian Michael Howard, Admiral as these intentions were, they were very different from those with which the peoples of Europe had gone to war three years earlier. The United States Army was small, the government passed the Selective Service Act on the 17th of May, which authorised the raising of a national army through conscription. It would take some time to mobilise, so it was not until several months later, into 1918, when very large numbers of American soldiers would be fighting on the front line. In the meantime, the Germans ordered a general withdrawal at the Western Front, abandoning the battlefields of the Somme, in order to establish a shorter, straighter and more well-fortified line, the so-called Hindenburg Line. In these new defences, trench lines were replaced by defended zones, based on widely separated machine-gun emplacements, in concrete pillboxes, defended by barbed wire and covered by pre-ranged artillery. 
The bulk of the infantry were kept back out of range of the enemy guns, ready to counter-attack. Behind these forward zones lay others in sufficient depth to make any breakthrough extremely difficult. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Western offensive for the spring of 1917 was devised by the French Commander-in-Chief Robert Nivelle. His plan was to attack the wooded heights of Chemin de Dame, a ridge lying behind the river Ain, while the British pinned down the German reserves with a separate offensive at Arras. The intention of the French was to employ a huge amount of artillery under the cover of which two of their armies would smash their way through the German lines before a third army would burst through the breach. It was the first time that the French used tanks. However, they were not yet tested on the battlefield and had a serious flaw in that the petrol tanks were not only inadequately armoured but were in front of the vehicle so any direct hit by a shell was likely to cause a fire. There was some success in the first four days of the Nivelle Offensive but the Germans were well prepared having received ample warning of the attack and the weather was terrible. Instead of the hoped-for breakthrough, there was a painful advance of just a few miles that had to be called off after only 10 days, by which time the French had suffered over 130,000 casualties. Nivelle was replaced by Philippe Pétain, the hero of Verdun, but by now the French army had had enough, and whole units began to refuse orders to return to the front. For the first time, war weariness began to set in among the French public, and there were growing numbers of strikes, including in munitions factories. Pétain gradually restored the military back to health, largely by improving its conditions 
and refraining from any new major offensives, but the French army on the Western Front would make little further contribution for the remainder of the year. Meanwhile, further east at Arras, the British and Imperial forces launched their offensive. The first phase of operation went successfully, with Canadian troops seizing an area of high ground known as the Vimy Ridge and inflicting many casualties on the enemy. However, the refortified German lines proved too strong, and the British artillery was not mobile enough to push home the advantage. The offensive gradually slowed down until it was broken off at the end of May. It was an exceptionally painful experience, having begun so well, but with daily casualties, the highest of the war, and totalling about 150,000 men in total. While the French were losing heart, the Central Powers were buoyed by their successes in the East against the collapsing Russian armies. It would take a while for the American troops to arrive in great numbers, and in the meantime, the German Navy, with their new policy of unrestricted submarine warfare, were causing immense damage to British shipping. In March 1917, the Germans sank more than 600,000 tonnes of shipping, growing to 869,000 tonnes in May, and Britain became in danger of being starved out of the war. However, the introduction of convoys bolstered by American ships was an immediate success, and the rate at which Allied shipping was being sunk began to fall. The failure of the U-boats to inflict the hoped-for damage to the British economy was a severe blow to the German High Command, who realised that the war could not be won with U-boats. The British High Command, led by Sir Douglas Haig, felt it was necessary to keep up the pressure on the Germans on the Western Front. They hoped that the German army and nation were approaching exhaustion by a combination of grinding attrition on the front line and the Royal Navy blockade. A British offensive was therefore planned for the late summer of 1917 in Flanders, in the old battlefield around Ypres, where a substantial advance might capture the Belgian ports used by the U-boats as their forward bases. Douglas Haig planned a series of limited attacks following so fast on each other that the Germans would have no time to recover. But the offensive encountered familiar problems, with the enemy resistance in greater depth and more determined than had been expected. Nonetheless, the British and Imperial troops battled on achieving limited success at great cost, until at the end of November, Canadian troops captured the ridge of Passchendaele, after which the entire battle came to be known. By that time, the British troops had lost a further 240,000 men, 70,000 of them dead. German losses totaled about 200,000. Their campaign in Flanders was controversial at the time, and has remained so. David Stevenson writes that it achieved nothing of great significance. At least in earlier battles, the British had learned lessons and improved their tactics, but not at Ypres, according to him. The British launched one more offensive on the Western Front in 1917 at Cambrai on the 20th of November. Part of the objective was to try out, on a large scale, new techniques that had been developing within the British Army of close cooperation between infantry, tanks and artillery. 
the tanks were not as effective as hoped for due to mechanical unreliability. But improvements in artillery meant that surprise attacks were becoming possible through better maps, closer analysis of meteorological data such as wind speeds and calibration of individual guns. Together, these changes were making it possible to deliver an accurate supporting barrage as soon as the infantry went over the top, without the need for preliminary ranging shots. German defences were overrun to a depth of four miles, and in England, church bells were rung to celebrate the victories. But they were premature. Ten days later, the Germans counter-attacked and retook all the land they had lost. On the Western Front, neither side had yet solved the problem of how to break through the opponent's lines. Other fronts of the Great War were potentially more fragile, as well as the Eastern Front, also the battle lines between the Italians and Austrians. Their frontier formed the shape of a huge S, with a salient at Trentino, bulging into Italy, and one at Udine, pushing into Austria. Most of the front was mountainous in character, while the area that saw the most fighting was a stretch along the river Isonzo, where there took place no less than 12 battles between June 1915 and November 1917. The Italian army was large, consisting of some 850,000 soldiers and based on a conscription system, but there were serious problems with both equipment and training. The lower ranks were largely drawn from peasant stock with high levels of illiteracy, but it would demonstrate a tough resilience to the harsh conditions. Although King Victor Emmanuel was nominally Commander-in-Chief, the effective leader was the Italian Chief of General Staff, General Luigi Cadorna. The Austrians carved out extremely strong defensive works on the mountainous Trent and Alpine fronts, using the terrain to their best advantage. Trenches, dugouts and gun pits were often blasted from the solid rock and covered by barbed wire. The defences on the Isonzo sector were also strong, tucked into the hills and ridges just behind the river. Italians repeatedly attacked the Austrian lines, but progress was virtually non-existent, and casualties immense. They also failed to make any significant advances in their tactical thinking, simply relying on courage and numbers to try and make a breakthrough. As time passed and casualties mounted, Italian morale seriously declined. One reason, writes Christopher Duggan, was the harsh treatment of the conscripts. Another was the bitterly low temperatures combined with poor pay and shortage of rations. Italian authorities were angry that Pope Benedict XV refused to declare the conflict as just, and more so in August 1917 when he issued a note declaring the war as a, quote, useless slaughter, unquote, and urging disarmament and arbitration. The lack of faith in the motivation of the troops was one important reason why the authorities refused, in contrast to other countries, to provide aid to those who had been captured. There was a fear that if the soldiers heard that conditions in prisoner of war camps were intolerable, they would surrender too easily. As a result, many Italian prisoners interned in Austria and Germany died of hunger and hunger-related diseases. By August 1917, the Italians had suffered well over 200,000 casualties and both sides had nearly reached breaking point. By then, the collapse of the Eastern Front 
meant that Ludendorff could now spare resources to help the Austrians, and he sent seven divisions to reinforce the Asonzo frontier. On the 25th of October, the Germans smashed through the Italian defences at Caporetto, taking 300,000 prisoners. The entire Italian front collapsed, and Olenic reformed two weeks later, 70 miles to the rear along the river Piave, with the loss of 275,000 prisoners and vast quantities of guns and stores. In addition, about half a million deserters had fled. There was more positive news for the Allies at the end of the year when on the 11th of December a British army led by Sir Edmund Allenby entered Jerusalem marking a successful campaign in Palestine against the Ottoman Empire. The main war front for the Ottomans was the Caucasus Mountains where they launched an unsuccessful attack against Russia in the winter of 1914-15 and then faced a Russian offensive in the summer of 1916. It was in the course of that campaign that the Turkish government carried out a pogrom of mass deportations and massacres of the indigenous Armenian population, so savage as to amount to genocide. Meanwhile, the British troops invaded the two directions, from Egypt and at Basra, at the head of the Persian Gulf. The latter campaign aimed to secure oil installations and to encourage local revolts. In 1915, they advanced up the valleys of the rivers Tigris and Euphrates with the aim of capturing Baghdad. The campaign was poorly organised and in April 1916, the British army, largely composed of Indians, was forced to surrender at the city of Kut el Amara on the Tigris, some 80 miles short of Baghdad. 10,000 prisoners were taken, of whom 4,000 died in captivity. A stronger expedition was mounted in December, which recaptured Kut el Amara, and the following March 1917 occupied Baghdad. In Egypt, meanwhile, the British fended off an Ottoman attack before advancing themselves through the Sinai Desert to the border of Palestine. After several attempts to break the Ottoman lines at Gaza failed in March 1917, a new British commander was sent out, Sir Edmund Allenby, who had previously commanded the Third Army at the recent Battle of Arras on the Western Front. Allenby would give a greater vigour to field operations and was bolstered by increasing numbers of troops, artillery and aircraft. Allenby's opponent was General Falkenhayn, now exiled by his enemies far from the centre of power, but there was little he could do against a much larger enemy. Allenby swept the Turks out of Gaza, then pushed along the Palestinian coast to the port of Jaffa, before swinging inland towards Jerusalem. Both sides avoided fighting in the Holy City. On the 9th of December, the British commander made his formal entrance on foot. The fall of Jerusalem was a significant moment with a huge propaganda value, which gave the Entente allies an end-of-year boost to their morale. In conclusion, the year 1917 saw the collapse of the Russian army and their departure from the war, while the Italians suffered a shattering defeat at Caporetto. Meanwhile, on the Western Front, stalemate remained, but at the cost of hundreds of thousands of lives on both sides. Meanwhile, the German submarine campaign had brought disaster. It had failed to knock Britain out of the war, 
and had the effect of persuading the Americans to drop the neutrality and to dedicate their massive resources to the Allied effort. The American entry appeared to tip the conflict in favour of the Allies, but with Russia defeated, the German High Command still believed in the possibility of a decisive knockout blow on the Western Front and therefore ultimate victory. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next month, I move on to the year 1918, when the Russian front collapses and the Germans are able to impose tough conditions in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. This allows the Germans to launch a major offensive in the West against the French and the British. All the best, and speak to you then. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.